I'm Jolie, your branding badass, and welcome to my new podcast, Branding Matters. Today, I'm sitting down with Tom Bassett, the founder of Bassett and Partners, a brand and design strategy agency in San Francisco. Prior to starting his own agency, Tom was the head of strategic brand planning at Wyden and Kennedy, the ad agency for a little-known brand called Nike. He also worked at TBWA Chiat Day, where he helped build the Apple brand and where he got to spend some time with the late, great Steve Jobs. I invited Tom to be a guest on my show to talk about strategy and why it's so important when building a brand. I also wanted to discuss briefly a brilliant film that he created that gives us the point of view from creative leaders about what they need and want out of a creative brief. Tom, welcome to Branding Matters. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure. One of the things I love about this is I get to have really interesting conversations with experts from all over the world, and I'm learning so much as I go. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. Okay, so quite an impressive resume. You headed up strategic planning on Nike at Wyden and Kennedy, and Apple at TBWA Shiat Day, and Yahoo at Black Rocket. So tell me, what was it like working all those places? You know, look, I was born and raised in Canada, and I. I came up, I started my advertising career. I was born and raised in Montreal. In Montreal. Okay, um, great. Me too. And then, yeah, and I worked at uh, uh, J. Walter Thompson, which is an agency in Montreal. And then it merged, as a lot of them did, with a uh, sort of more local French-Canadian firm because of the bilingual nature of the audience there. I ended up getting transferred to Toronto. And I think, you know, reflecting on my experience, going to Widen and Kennedy was sort of like getting drafted in the major leagues, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one no thing kidding. to, no disrespect to Canadian advertising scene. I'm very proud to have been from there. But, you know, when you're working at Widen and Kennedy on Nike, it's it's sort of exhilarating. It's a bit terrifying on some levels, but um, yeah, they're all phenomenal agencies. Same thing at Chiate in LA is the agency that does Apple's work. So to be involved with people who have done advertising work at that level it was phenomenal. It's just an amazing experience. I love the way you compared it to being drafted. When I wanted to work at Wyden and Kennedy, I flew out there on vacation and I called them from pay phone across the street. Um, and they're in Portland, been, correct? They're in Portland. I had yeah. a car phone at the time, but cell phones weren't as prevalent. And so I literally called from the pay phone across the street and I said, I'm here. I want to work at the agency. Who do I talk to? And they were sort of blown away that I had gone to that effort. So that one thing that to another side. If, if there's any advice I would give a junior person trying to get in the industry or somebody who's trying to get a job somewhere they really want to work is go. Go yeah. your, go for yourself and be there. Yeah. See it for yourself. I agree totally. I You know, I did the same thing actually when I was looking for work and I tell my son the same thing. I say, don't just send a resume, go in person and ask for, find out the name of the manager or the person in charge and ask for their name specifically. Good for you. That's impressive. So were you a suit or a creative? as we call them in the agency world. Yeah, I started as an account coordinator. And luckily, the guy I worked for was uh, also an account guy. I didn't have account planning then at J. Walter Thompson in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Luckily, he was a brilliant strategist as well and really taught me the strategy sort of foundations. And they had a thing called the Thompson Way, which I'm sure still exists. There are these templates that you follow to to go through the strategic thinking process. I think I was a mediocre account person <laughs> in the sense my level of attention to detail maybe wasn't as stellar as it could be, um, but I seemed to have a 
inclination towards strategy. Um, and so I eventually, um, after a few years, got into the strategy field. When I applied to Widen Kennedy, I applied as a planner. They call it account planning, which is not a great title because it sounds like you organize parties. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, start, I, I started as a, a planner on uh, Nike, which was a bit of a, uh, I'll be honest with you, was, there was a limited time frame in my mind that it was either going to work or it wasn't because they had never really successfully integrated planning on Nike. They tried a few, but nothing really stuck. And so I, uh, I figured I had a six month lease on life. I would take this job, I would give it a try and either it would work or it wouldn't work. And if it didn't work, they'd fire me. And if it worked, who knew? But yeah, that's how it started. I love that. And Portland's nice. So if anything, you got to live in a beautiful city for a while. <laughs> Right. I loved it at the time. They had difficulty recruiting people. And so everybody wanted to be in New York or LA. Um, and not that many people sort of either wanted to be in Oregon or understood or appreciated. I just saw the work that they were doing on behalf of Nike and thought, mm -hmm. I don't know what it is they do, but whatever it is they do, there's some sort of magic and I want to learn it and I want to understand it and I would love to contribute to it. That's um, amazing. But I just saw it as this sort of fantastic opportunity to really be exposed to people who operated at a very, what I perceive to be a very different level. Yeah. Of so what was it like being there? I mean, what was the what was the best part, the most exciting part? And who did you meet? Did you meet any famous people? Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, athletes because <laughs> Nike. Well, the reason I asked because Nike is sort of synonymous with really top famous athletes. So I'm just curious, working there at the time, did you have any involvement and meet with any top athletes? Yes, so I started shortly before the 96 Olympics, which were uh, in Atlanta. Um, and so the Olympics brief for Nike in Atlanta was my first big project. In the course of that, I met, you know, Michael Johnson and we actually hung out. We went out one night with a group of us. Oh, um, no way. And, That's uh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. He said he can actually uh, take tequila shots pretty well. I was pretty surprised. <laughs> I was like, hang on a sec. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, is that your roommate? <laughs> I've, had, I've actually had dogs on a quite a few interviews, so it's Stop par for the course. So tequila my, shots. My, <laughs> yes, my first big brief I worked on for Nike was at the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996. We got to meet a lot of the athletes, the American athletes, Michael Johnson, Lisa Leslie, Cheryl Swoops, Gail Devers. For that campaign, I ended up meeting Michael Jordan. I worked on the Jordan brand, helped craft a strategy for how to advertise for him, but also once he was moving into retirement, how to recast his role within the company because he was no longer a player. We what was it like meeting him? Night. Was he retired then? He, ha he had not retired, okay. but he was playing his last season, if you watch The Last Dance on. I was just going to ask you, have you seen that documentary? I have sort of lived a lot of it. But yeah, I mean, he's a, on some levels, he's an intimidating character because he's Michael Jordan. And, but we had a, a point, yeah, we had a point of view for his brand and, um, and we had a pretty tight presentation and uh, he's a smart guy. So um, so it went really well and he he bought off on it and we produced a campaign that repositioned him as a CEO, which he liked, you know, rather than just being a player, he was now the owner of Brand Jordan or the pseudo owner. So that was good. And then we helped relaunch Tiger Woods or sorry, Nike Golf, which included hiring uh, Tiger Woods as kind of the the big iconic athlete as part of the Nike golf brand, I guess, were the sort of the big yeah. name, bigger names. I met a lot of other athletes along the way, Lance Armstrong, but yeah, sort of, sort of the big names. So you mentioned Tiger Woods. Was that before his controversy or after? Uh, well before. This is what he hadn't even turned pro. He was just oh, okay. in the process of turning pro. So he was at the very beginning of his okay. career. I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent. So we do, I do a ton of Nike swag, right? People love to have branded golf shirts and everybody always asks for Nike. And when before the incident, you know, Nike was everywhere. And people wanted Tiger Woods brand specifically because he has his own brand of apparel. And then that happened and then it sort of went to the wayside. And so I'm curious to know, how do you think a brand 
recoups itself and how do you dig yourself out of that hole? Because that's a really good example of a great brand that went sideways and now he's back up again. There's that demand again. What's your take on that? It's a complex question you're asking, right? Did Tiger Woods damage the Nike brand? I would argue no. Maybe temporarily there was some PR hit to it to some degree, but they have such a broad base of athletes and sports that are involved in in such a history that it was a blemish on him as a personal side, but he didn't cheat at sports. He didn't cheat at golf. So as an athlete, as a performance athlete, which is really his role relative to the Nike brand, it was unfortunate. But in the long run, he's made a big comeback. He came back and won the Masters last year. I think to some degree, people can fail and we can see them come back. And so maybe there's a short-term reaction to that. Absolutely. There's the Nike brand and then there's a Tiger Woods brand. There's all this whole line of Tiger Woods apparel. And so I can tell you from my experience, when all that happened, there was not the same demand for the Tiger Woods apparel. And then, like you said, when he made a comeback and he said, people root the underdog and they want to see them rise and succeed. And then you see how it comes back. And I love the fact that Nike stood by him and didn't leave like so many other people. So, yeah. Yeah, I think if he had done some. If he had done something in the context of golf and performance, you know what I mean? If he was taking steroids or whatever, that that's right. one ca- case, right. but he didn't. Well, and then there's Lance, Lance, Lance Armstrong was the other one that you mentioned, right? Where that brand Well, is Lance completely... is clearer, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. You know, that there's a clear case of cheating to achieve <laughs> high performance levels, right? And if you're if you're sponsoring someone for their athletic performance, that's an issue of integrity. And I think yeah. it has to be addressed more centrally. I think this was a, a grayer area for them as a sponsor. Yeah, no, it's interesting. After you were at Wyden and Kennedy, then did you go and work on the Apple account at TBWA? I did. There was a guy who was running the Nike account at the time at Wyden. He went down to Shiate to work on Apple um, and he was looking for a strategist. So um, he uh, basically recruited me to go down there. Amazing. So one huge brand to now another huge brand. Were there any similarities between working at the two companies? I think the similarities run in a level of taste, right? A level of style that both of them have very exacting standards in terms terms of style and styling cues, the importance of that and and the value of design. I think they both are incredibly clear storytellers and value story and really understand how to leverage that. I think culturally, one's a tech company and one's a, you know, a sports brand. And these are two very different kinds of companies on some levels. Apple was much more centrally run and decided to the point of, you know, Steve Jobs made a lot of the decisions himself. It's almost like a fashion brand. Like, you know, there's a, a creative director at the top who's deciding everything. Um, I think Nike is very strongly run centrally, but I think there's a fair bit of autonomy that happens. They have like, you know, any given time, they might have 5,000 SKUs, right? Mm. And, you know, Apple sort of has a relative handful. So it's, I think it's easier for Apple to control fewer products and they they scale the heck out of them. Nike is a very different model where they have 5,000 SKUs at any given time. In fact, Steve Jobs and Mark Parker, uh, Mark Parker was the CEO, now the chairman of Nike, sort of befriended one another. And Steve Jobs came up and was like, you're crazy. Well, you have way too many SKUs. You know? Oh, really? Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, so did you meet uh, Steve Jobs? I was yelled at by Steve Jobs. Oh, yes. no. <laughs> I <laughs> so, read it. Did you read his book? Uh, you know, I didn't because I lived a lot of it, I guess. So I didn't feel the sort of the need or the desire to. But uh, but yes, he was in meetings with us. Yeah. Or we were in meetings with him, I guess, more <laughs> realistically. So I get the feeling it wasn't the best experience working with Apple. It was phenomenal. Phenomenal experience. You know, yeah. again, back to somebody with incredibly exacting standards 
standards with incredible attention to detail. He is not necessarily known for having gone to charm school, but you know, if you can take that and you just take it for what it is, then I'd say in a lot of cases, he's right. If you read, there's a book written by uh, Ed Catmull of uh, Pixar. And he talked about how actually in the story reviews for the Pixar films, they actually had Steve not attend because he had such a strong point of view and people didn't want to know what to do with him. The running Apple, he was brilliant. It was what that company needed. So Mm -hmm. he came back with a, a very clear point of view, very strong leadership style, and they became the most valuable company in the world. He did a lot of things right. So was it always pleasant? Not necessarily, but you know, if you did your job and you did good work, he approved it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wasn't a committee decision. So that was kind of nice. I read the book. And so they, I mean, it's very clear in that book. They talk, they tell a lot of stories about him. I thought it was a really good book and it was really interesting and give them a little of the backstory, but I've never talked to someone who was actually yelled at by him. So it's interesting to hear your feedback. You said he was a great leader as far as taking a company to to being one of the most successful brands. Would you say that was probably his greatest accomplishment? I don't know. (laughs) That's a big question. What his greatest accomplishment was. Well, I just meant when you worked with him, like what you saw firsthand. Yeah, just, I guess there was a level of passion and devotion and just infinite attention to detail that really permeated everything and everybody that was in and around Apple, right? Mm -hmm. And so they do things extremely well. They do everything right they don't cut corners and they expect a lot of people and they get that back out. If you look at the finishes on the iPhone or you look at the way the software experiences are designed, you look at their campus, you look at, you know, their advertising, it's all just incredibly well done. They spare no expense, but it shows again, back to this, I think similarity with Nike is they, they really value design and they yeah. really have a sense of style. I mean, when I think about those two brands specifically, the reason I asked about similarities, because I think that the simplicity of both of them, right. And the design and in their branding and in their logo, it's it's very apparent everything you see about how they go to market and present themselves. And I would assume that their target market is probably similar. I mean, I think a lot of people that are that wear Nike and buy Nike or have the AirPods in and have iPhones. <laughs> would you say? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's definitely a tribe. Um, yeah. I think there's a simplicity to their storytelling, which is hard for people to achieve. I think a lot of people, you know, in advertising will look and say like, oh, I could go work at Widen Kennedy. It's easy to do great Nike work. It's like, actually, I think it's that much harder because they want to make things very, you know, I have this sort of guiding philosophy for our company is is a quote from Einstein, which is everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. And I think they do that with the product, with the storytelling, with the experiences. Mm -hmm. It is very simple on some level, but it's so simple. It's almost elegant. That is... I think it's harder for a lot of companies to replicate. They see that and they want it, but they don't understand how to get it. Well, I think if I were to sum it up, I'd say just because something is simple doesn't mean it's easy. I love your philosophy and that's a great intro into what I was going to ask you. Do you have any input with the creative? I mean, do you work with the creative department? Do you come up helping them with the ideas? Yeah. So there's, look, there are a lot of different strategists and a lot of different ways to see it. And there's a lot of different types of strategists. I'm a bit binary in the sense that like, I feel like there are sort of ivory tower strategists who says really smart things from the hilltop that doesn't really actually get down into the weeds of really interviewing people and understanding people. And I think I'm much more of a bottom-up person. I really want to understand people. I want to understand how they view a brand. I want to understand how they view a category, how they experience a product, how they connect it with culture. And it's very insight-based. And so my philosophy on strategy is that our job is to be a catalyst for the development of a great creative platform. I think where strategists can go wrong is they feel like they're sort of 
of preordained to be the ones with the brains of the operation to say, this is what it's going to be and this is how it's going to work. And then somebody just goes and executes that. So to answer, get back to answering your question, I have very close relationships with creative people and creative teams. And I think that's a very important part mm-hmm. of the whole process uh, because if they don't know you and tr- don't trust you, you're probably not going to get very far. If you have that level of trust with the creative teams, like we're working on a campaign once for Yahoo and it was for Yahoo search. And I came up with the line bingo, which is kind of what people feel when they find exactly what it is they're mm-hmm. looking for. And this was at a time when people thought surfing was interesting and they were slowly starting to change. So like, I don't really want to surf. I just want to find that piece of information I'm looking for. The creative team were big enough to say, hey, that's the idea. Like that's the mm-hmm. line, you know, that's so that yeah. was the tagline for the campaign. And so we had that history, we had that trust and they had that openness. But again, that's fewer and far between. You have to also really trust the creative teams you're working with to solve the problem, right? Yeah. Um, Dan Wyden had a great philosophy, which was don't tell my team what the answer is, but challenge them with the question and have them solve it creatively. And so we actually developed this whole working methodology where the brief was a question. The role of a planner is to write the creative brief. The difference between an account planner and account manager is the account planners kind of really responsible for knowing the consumer and the account person should really know the business. This episode of Branding Matters is brought to you by Gems for Gems. Gems for Gems is a proactive charity focused on ending the cycle of domestic abuse. They do this by creating viable and sustainable paths forward for survivors. With a concentration on empowerment and economic recovery, Gems for Gems works hand-in-hand with the community to help survivors thrive. What can you do to help? Well, if you have any used jewelry lying around that you no longer wear, and let's be honest, we all have some of that, you can donate it to their jewelry drive. If you have any spare time and you want to find a way to give back, this is a great opportunity and you can join their ambassador program. I personally am a part of this ambassador program because I am all about empowering women and this is a great opportunity to do just that. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute financially, you can become a donor to their incredible scholarship program. Whichever way you decide to help, just know that you are making a huge difference and your contribution is meaningful and greatly appreciated. To learn more about Gems for Gems, you can visit their website at gemsforgems.com. You can also find them on Facebook under Gems for Gems and on Instagram under Gems for Gems Canada. And you can always reach out to me on any social media platform under Branding Badass. And now, back to our show. What inspired you to do this film? It's called Briefly. And what was sort of the impetus for doing it? I actually watched it and it was phenomenal. Oh, thank you. I think the idea for it was really that I had ex- had experienced a lot of, you know, or I'd had a lot of exposure to great creative talent, great companies and great brands that valued that. And I thought, I wonder if I could pay it forward to other people, particularly more sort of junior people coming up through the business or into the business. What could I potentially help teach them about the craft of account planning or strategy, if you will. And so I decided at the time that I didn't really want to just do advertising because I or, or interview advertisers because I felt like I knew that. And, 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 and there are a handful of great advertising people in there. John Jay, who was the global creative director at Widen Kennedy on Nike, the founder of 72 and Sunny, which has been written up as company is one of the most innovative companies you know, in America, but really extend beyond that. So I have Eve Behar in it, who is one of the most well-known industrial product designers in the 
world, Swiss guy, Frank Gehry, whom actually a Canadian American, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, David Rockwell, who's a phenomenal architect and designer. And then Myra Coleman, who's a children's book illustrator and does a lot of covers for the New York magazines. I guess what I really wanted to do expand the lens beyond advertising and just really understand what the similarities were across creative disciplines from the point of view of the creative person. I could have done the same thing and talked to a lot of account planners or strategists and they would have sound made sound everything sound really intellectual and mm-hmm. so easy and you just have to create these briefs and magic happens and I thought let's ask the people who re- I always I always viewed that my audience as the creative team yes I had well, had some accountability to client but really I saw my job as being able to extract no, I shouldn't say extract, but inspire, I suppose, the best possible creative product from the team I was working with. And so being a planner and divorced from the relationship with the client, I could really lean into that. The premise of the film was what could we learn from great creative leaders about what they need and want out of a creative brief? What are some of the things that film brought to the forefront? Well, each chapter in the film discusses a different theme. And I won't go through them all, but there's a no. theme about the importance of relationships, for example, and how important it is for them to have relationships with clients, but them to have relationships with their own people, but just really understand that you can have this free exchange of information that having discussions and sometimes non-linear discussions about the products, you know, Yves Behar talks about going to trade shows with clients and just wandering around and seeing things and talking about things. Just having that level of trust and relationship is really important. And there's a chapter on conflict. Frank Geary leads that one where he's in big conflict over the Eisenhower Memorial that he's now in the process of building in Washington. A lot of people echo that, yeah, you've got to pay attention to the brief, but it's somehow, at some point, there's kind of a bit of a leap to the creative platform. Form. And it's not always linear and not always easy, but there is disagreement or there can be disagreement with client and that's okay. So I think there's some great lessons in there in terms of how to think about developing a creative brief. I think that the final quote in the film is really a summary of the film, which is if you can ask the right question, you can usually solve the problem. And that's in a way, the foundation of great creativity is asking a lot of questions, but ultimately deciding on what is the question to be answered. So our job is really talk about what does the brand stand for? Uh, Volvo, safety. BMW, performance, Mercedes, engineering. Okay, what is the foundation for this brand, right? So to to really get everybody aligned around what the the core idea is behind the brand or a particular product launch, Mm -hmm. whatever you will. Mm -hmm. Then there's a whole separate group that talks about media buying and placement. Now, the brand to some degree shouldn't form those channels and those kinds of things. I mean, look at Tesla, right? I mean, Elon Musk will post things on his Twitter feed saying, hey, I'm trying to solve this problem or, you know, what's wrong with my car? and people will email him directly, right? You're interacting with the CEO of the company, right? This visionary who, by the way, went to Queen's University, but... (laughs) I did not know that. My son is a huge Elon Musk fan. He talks about him all the time. I'll have to let him know that. Now he's going to want to go to Queen's. Um, (laughs) So it's somewhat contingent on sort of what the brand stands for. Like say your brand proposition is safety, right? Mm -hmm. Presumably the medium that you're choosing or the media mix is not an unsafe one. For instance, like if you're doing something for child safety, like, well, you probably don't want it on some ungated YouTube channel where random porn pops up, right? Right. Like that's not safe, right? So, (laughs) so I think, so, so our job is to really determine like what the creative platform should be. Go back to the 1996 Olympics brief was kind of an iconic brief to some degree. It was, you know, how do we communicate the idea that sport is war minus the killing? And it's like, whoa, like in an, you know, in an environment of the Olympics, that's yeah. shocking, but that yeah. sort of was the strategy of really leaning into the truth of an athlete, a Nike athlete's Olympic point of view. Mm-hmm. And so they had these big, bold posters at that time or whatever, so that the media to some degree was like aggressive and shocking. The imagery was that way and the headlines were. But alternatively, if you're trying to, um, 
I'm trying to think of a current of a brand or something that you're, what would you do with this brand? Let's take Amazon. I think Amazon's a great thing because like I think of them, you know, they started very simply, right? It's like we're an online bookstore. At that moment in time, the best thing you could do was provide a framework for something existing in the real world. And then just say, oh, we do that online, online bookstore. You got Oh, I've been to a bookstore. You go into a bookstore, you look for a book, you grab the book, you take it the cash and you go out. Like, I get that. Then it was online books and CDs and then it was virtual bazaar. And now it's like, what is it? I mean, <laughs> AWS has Uber and Airbnb and every other major brand on the planet, right? So yeah. back to your questions, like, it's kind of a big question of like, well, how do you advise somebody how to advertise? Like, Well, I guess I was thinking more along the lines of, I'm, I'm circling back to, you talked about relationships, right? When you talked about your brief and you talked about creating relationships. So a big part, I think, of branding is trying to connect with the consumer on an emotional level. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big part of my history and experience. So you're trying to connect on an emotional level with your audience. Now in the digital space, because I think we're all on there, whether it is Elon Musk on Twitter, connecting with people, I would think it's more challenging now to do that. How do you keep it humanized in this digital space? I think they're constantly relearning the formula. Like mm-hmm. at one point, Old Spice did that whole campaign where they called out specific people and, and their actor would respond to something you tweeted and like, oh my God, that's mm-hmm. like revolutionary. Nobody's <laughs> done that before. And so given all these different media right now, whether it's Instagram stories or TikTok or whatever, people are just constantly experimenting. So I think it's left sort of the advertising marketing industry kind of dizzy because you're just constantly having to reinvent the wheel yeah. um, and, and it's hard. So I think to your point, connecting people emotionally is, is important. But I think, you know, on that point, if you looked at like an iPod campaign, right, people probably remember the dancing people mm-hmm. with the white headphones. But one of the first campaign or one of the first boards, actually, I think Steve Jobs might have written the headline was 5,000 songs in your pocket. And people were like, oh, thank you. That's what a digital music player is, right? Like before there was all this Diane Rio, da-da-da. And I was like, what is this thing? And he just kind of came out and said, oh, it's like 5,000 songs in your pocket, kind of like online bookstore. So I think you have to recognize where you are in the development. If you're entering a category and you're reinventing the way something is done and it's never been done that way before, you kind of need a handrail. Elon Musk is selling cars. People understand what cars are. So it's, yeah, it's an electric car and it's got a big screen and it's Tesla and all that stuff, but it's still a car and I understand what a car is. So I think it depends a lot on what it is you're trying to market. Right. And that goes back to your philosophy about everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. I read, I think it was on your website where you talked about helping brands get to their unique emotional truth. So that was, I thought that was an interesting line. Can you elaborate a bit on that and share maybe how to do that? Yeah, I think, (laughs) and this goes kind of probably counter to a lot of what people want to hear but keep the goal in mind. Unfortunately, a lot of people get too enamored by process and they're looking for a repeatable process to land up in an original place. I'm like, uh, <laughs> that seems antithetical, right? Can you uh, I wanna, give an example of that? Well, if I go through a car wash, I'm going to get my car wash over and over again. I'm not going to land up on Mars, right? I don't care how I get there. I just know that I want to get to a unique emotional truth for this brand. Nike got, I shouldn't say got lucky, but early on, you know, Nike is the goddess of victory in Greek mythology, right? So victory was kind of like at the core of that brand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, watching sports as an emotional experience, doing sports as an emotional experience, winning sports is like super emotional, right? And so you're, you're already in this like hypercharged emotional kind of space and they were a bunch of athletes and I think they just 
responded to, I even hesitate to call it advertising because I don't think it was advertising, yeah, it was something no. else. And so I think they sort of created this whole model of like, oh, wow, you're you're connecting with me with emotionally, but you're not just saying, here's this, this product does. Trying to sell right? me something. Yeah, the shoe is yeah. more comfortable. They went, hey, you can slam dunk like Michael Jordan. Like, mm-hmm. ooh, I, yeah. And it's Spike Lee. Oh, he's cool. It's culture, right? So I think getting to that emotional truth is really the end goal. How you get there is going to vary. I think there's their templates. You can look them up online. Everybody, every agency has some sort of briefing form But at some point, somewhere along the line, if you can identify that underlying human truth that's going to resonate and connect you with a shared value system with your buyer, user, consumer, however you want to define them. I love what you said. So since COVID, what would you say are the biggest challenges within the design tech and creative communities? I think creativity thrives on in-person collaboration um, and serendipity to a large extent. (laughs) There's a lot of happenstance and we live in a very prescriptive culture. You and I had a call scheduled at 4 p.m. Pacific and we got on at 4 p.m. I got off a call at 4 p.m. You know, I barely had time to run to the restroom, right? So I think short-term people are probably able to figure it out. I think longer-term that's going to be a harder dynamic to replicate in a digital environment. Um, I think we'll find new ways of working that, you know, we're very adaptable human beings, but I think that's, that's the biggest missing piece I've heard from all the creative people. The frustration is just like, just those in person, like I'm riding the Hertz bus back to LAX and we're just having a conversation about something and I'm like, Oh my God, an idea came to us. Like we just don't have that. Yeah. Right. time together um, you can't to feed just, off each other as much right just bounce yeah. it's like improvs like hey, yeah. okay do improv on your own now or do improv yeah. digitally it's like eh, it's, it's kind yeah. of you're you're, t- you're playing with one hand tied behind your back now things like television production or f- you know photography and shoots like that like you can't have everybody around now and everything's locked down. So again, what's the serendipity on set if everybody's got to be six feet apart and wearing masks? And it's a very challenging environment, I think, for them. But I think we're still all responding to a little bit in shock, right? Like COVID happened and everyone was like, oh my God, it was fight or flight. And everyone was fearful for a while. Now they've kind of wrapped their heads around it and they're ready to move forward. But, you know, we've not all been vaccinated. So I think <laughs> I think we'll I'd be curious to see what happens moving forward. I think that the future of cities and the future of office is a big question mark around creativity and how to, you know, you've got much more distributed teams and you've got people who can and live all over the world. You've got digital nomads now, people living out of vans all over the place and they love it. But is that really going to help the creative quality? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think the big shock is I don't think any of us expected to, this to go on as long as it has, right? <laughs> like you said. I'm very optimistic about the future of creativity, um, regardless of the constraints that the environment provides. I think there's always, you know, when paint first was you know, invented, it was like just very functional to cover houses. And then artists looked at it and went, oh, I could do some fun stuff with that. And, oh, you yeah, know. absolutely. I totally agree with you. Okay, so before we go, you were talking earlier about how you interviewed a lot of people. You talked about Frank Gehry. Um, you didn't mention Mark Cuban, but you t- you had mentioned to me that you had interviewed him amongst many others. So who to date has been your favorite person to interview and why? This is a bizarre one, say, and it probably not that many people know about him. I interviewed a guy by the name of Harry Benson. Uh, he's a famous photographer. He basically was like the Beatles photographer who came over with the Beatles when they first came to America, Scottish guy. And I interviewed him for a project I was working on. And uh, he, I think, applied many of the same techniques that I do in interviewing people, but to photography. And 
I realized partway through the interview that it was like the fox interviewing the fox. And everywhere I'd go, he'd kind of run away a bit, but then he'd come back and mess with me. And like, it was just this really interesting dynamic. And he's just a fascinating character, the life he's lived and everything. And he's just beautiful photography. If you've seen any of his coffee table books, he's just incredibly talented and and has some of the most uh, memorable uh, Beatles photos you've would have ever seen but um he was just a kind of a really interesting character and he he only worked on his terms no matter who he was interviewing and he'd walk out on famous people i want to say he walked out on michael jackson actually because he was just like yeah no you don't own the rights i'm calling the shots on what we shoot and what we produce and i'm not i'll leave and they they called him when he was down in the lobby and sent him back up and said okay we'll do it your way but he was a very um determined self-driven photographer so i think that was probably maybe one of the more unusual ones i oh uh, that's interesting so is he still alive or no i'm not sure because i interviewed him i want to say he was well into his 70s at that point it might have been 10 years ago now so okay interesting i'm gonna look him up what was mark cuban like uh it was a bit of an odd setup situation i don't think he was set up for success in a bad way it was a big project for large uh, soft drink brand uh, and it was a sports marketing assignment and he owns the mavericks right and so they said oh we got mark cuban you can ask him anything you want and so i dropped into this room and were you intimidated? I, I was, but I, to be honest with you, I've interv- at this point, I've interviewed a lot of fairly famous people. Yeah. And so there's a bit of nervous energy in every interview like that. But at the end of the day, they're just people. And, you know, the more you can connect yeah. with them as people and, and not BS, they just want to know you're authentic and they'll open up. I don't think I got out of it what I was hoping to get out of it. Yeah, because he had he had sold his company for how many billion or billion two or something. So I was, I was expecting yeah. these incredibly broad sweeping ideas and I, I didn't get there. I was a failure on my part, I think, to, to get the information I was hoping to get from him. Was he a nice guy though? Like, he, he, you know, he oh, very kept, nice. Yeah, he's yeah. very jovial, very okay. nice, very like good sense yeah. of humor, like relaxed. He was just, he was just a, a dude. Like you yeah. could picture going to a basketball game and having a beer with him. Like it wasn't, you know, intense. Yeah. it wasn't like Steve Jobs where Steve Jobs walks in the room and everybody's like yeah, tightens no up, you know. I bet. Well, it's funny you say that about being intimidated. When I first started doing this podcast and interviewing people, I was so nervous. And then you quickly realize, like like you said, we are just people. And if you can, the more authentic you are and you connect on that human level, I find I'm I'm more calm now and I'm less, you know, nervous. And I would normally be super nervous to sit down and talk to you, but I seem to be pretty good. <laughs> Okay. Uh, uh, well, I mean, you have so much amazing information, Tom, to share, and I really appreciate that. If anyone wants to learn more about Briefly, which we talked about briefly earlier, or about you or TMB, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, sure. I mean, Briefly is available for free on Vimeo. Um, so if you just type Great in video. Briefly on Vimeo, we pop up. It's got about I don't know three hundred thousand views or something. I found a company called Mind Swarms. M I N D Swarms. Um, so Tom at MindSwarms.com. Yeah. Do you want to? Sorry, we didn't touch on that. Do you want to quickly t- share a little bit about what that is? It's a uh, what we call a mobile video ethnography platform. So it's a ask questions and answers from people all over the world. So we do that for most of the big brands I already talked about. And people what's sort of the premise it. behind it? Like what what inspired you to create that? I spent a lot of my career going to people, sort of idea of go for, see for yourself, going in person and interviewing people and videotaping those interactions and then bringing that videotape back to share with clients because mm-hmm. they weren't often there. And so when the internet came along, I was like, oh, we, maybe we could do this digitally 
remotely. And we started that and then we bought it into mobile. Um, so yeah, it's just a way of gathering feedback from people all over the world via video um, and understanding how they see something, how they use something, how they relate to something, and sometimes how they react to an ad or a design or a product as well. So is it sort of a digital way of doing focus groups? Right. So focus groups are sort of an old model, right? You've got eight strangers in a room for 90 right. minutes and you have a two-way mirror and you ask them some questions and it's, you're supposed to value their opinion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think a well-moderated group can be good. There's always someone in the group who's outspoken and then there's always the shy people, the bias of the moderator. So, so ours is just one-on-one digitally, remotely. It's just you and your home or you're comfortable. There's no strangers. There's no two-way mirror. Um, and it's a video selfie confessional and somebody says, you know, what do you think of Nike? And you say, well, yeah. well I think they're a great company or I really hate that they sponsor such and such or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. You know um, people have their opinions. And so it's really just, just getting sort of unvarnished opinions from people via video That's- all over the world. That's great. I love it. And so it's called Mind Swarms? Correct. Cool. Well, I love that. That's a great idea. And are you on social media? Uh, yeah, I'm at Tom Bass on Twitter. I'm obviously on LinkedIn. I don't do much on Instagram or Facebook. Um, we, you know, we publish our own newsletter and those kinds of things. Cool. Well, thank you again. It was so nice talking to you. And um, I hope I get to meet you one day in person next time in San Francisco. I like It's one of my favorite cities, so I'm definitely going to be back. So I'm going to look you up. <laughs> Come visit us when the coast is <laughs> Will you is remember clear. me? <laughs> of course. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks again. Uh, have a great night, and I'll talk to you again soon. And there you have it. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a few things to help you with your branding. But most of all, I really hope you had some fun. This show is a work in progress, so please make sure to rate and review on whatever platform you listen to. And if you want to learn more about the branding badass, that's me, you can find me on social media under, you know it, branding badass. Thanks again, and until next time, Here's to all you badasses out there.